Mark chapter 7. We left off last week in verse 24. And this week, Lord willing, we're going to go from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. So let's read in Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. It says, And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having departed. And again he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they entreated him to lay his hands upon him. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. You. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, or something, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear. And the dumb to speak. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we've come to your word, we ask that you would give us tremendous faith to receive your word. We ask that you would cause us to take your word at face value and those things that you declare here that you are able to do and that reflect your heart, that we would expect you to be doing those things in our lives, in our fellowship here, in our ministries, and in our families, and on this coastline. That we would be expecting you to deliver our youth from oppression, from demonization, that we'd be expecting you to open the ears of those who cannot hear, to loose the tongues of those who cannot speak, that we would expect you to open the eyes of the blind and the minds of the unbelieving, that we would expect you, God, to be sufficient for all things in our midst. And so as we come to your word with faith, Transform our hearts to align with yours, knowing that your heart is a heart of compassion and love and unending concern. Give us such hearts. Give us faith not only to hear your word and to believe it, but to be transformed by it. Transform us this morning by the renewing of our minds and still in us godly principles for godly living. We ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning in our text, we see two amazing encounters that Jesus has with two different individuals. 
And in both of these encounters, we will take note that Jesus ignores the traditions of the days, or sometimes the superstition of the day, or ideas that were commonly held by the men and women of that time. And in so doing, Jesus is removing barriers between God and man. Jesus is always the barrier breaker. In fact, we're calling this message Jesus, barrier breaker and formula fighter. Jesus is always seeking to break down barriers. We saw last week that Jesus shattered the traditions of the religious leaders, that they were concerned with people conforming to their traditions, and Jesus was concerned with people conforming to his word. Amen? And we spoke about that extensively. And this week, we're going to see that Jesus breaks down the barriers that cause people to be alienated from one another and from him. Very important. And also we'll see that he casts aside the things that would cause us to want to hold him in some sort of box, to put God in a box, to kind of come up with a system or a formula that says, well, this is the way that God does it, and this is the way that he always does it, and I'm not prepared for God to do it any other way. Jesus is a formula fighter. We'll see in the second encounter that he gets rid of some formulas. But in this woman who approaches Jesus on behalf of her daughter, we see in her a picture of alienation. Jesus has left the area of of, of the Sea of Galilee in verse 24, and he's journeyed about 60 miles northwest to this area called Tyra. Tyra is in what we would consider modern-day Lebanon, and it's right there on the coast. And this is really the only time that we see in the book of Mark, and maybe in all the Gospels, where Jesus ventures outside of Israel and does ministry there. His ministry during his lifetime was confined to Israel. Now he goes beyond the borders of Israel into Lebanon. And he's gone there for a very expressed purpose. You remember in Mark chapter 6, verse 31. That he said to his disciples, hey guys, let's go away and let's get alone and spend some time together. There's a little um, parenthetical statement in Mark 6.31 that says things were so busy that Jesus and the disciples couldn't even take a quiet meal together. So Jesus has brought his disciples away. He sought to do it on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but you'll remember the multitudes followed them and there was a feeding of the 5,000. And then there was a storm after that. And then there was this encounter with the Pharisees. And now Jesus goes northward, seeking some time alone with his disciples. Why? You'll remember that we spoke of a few weeks ago that the the force or the focus of his ministry has changed now. No longer is, is his ministry based on going from city to city, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But now he's going to focus the majority of his attention on the building up of the 12 disciples, the training of the 12, because he's now one year before the cross. And in a year, these 12 guys will be the leaders of the church. And so Jesus determines in Mark chapter 6 and into our text now to heavily invest in these guys. And so now he's got them alone up in this area of Tyra, away from everyone they know, away from the hustle and bustle, out of Israel. And he goes into a house and it says there he wants to be alone. Jesus doesn't want anybody to know that he's there. But even up here in Lebanon, his reputation and divine appointments won ahead of him. Jesus, during his ministry, can never get away from his reputation. 
And we see that the Father always had divine appointments in place for our Lord. Remember Jesus said, I do nothing except for that which I see the Father do. He did that which the Father wanted him to do. And so we know as he went up to Lebanon that the Father had prepared divine appointments. And his reputation had preceded him because he wanted to be in the house with his disciples. But the word got out and the people started coming. Now, we've got to realize that the same is true for you and I as it is for Jesus. The moment the world knows that we're disciples of Jesus, our reputation or what ought to be our reputation or what unfortunately is our reputation will precede us. Isn't that true? People have their... um, Uh, preconceived ideas and connotations about Christians, and the moment they know you are one, oh no. You're not a born-again, are you? Oh, a born-again, I can't stand you guys. The reputation precedes us. Or it's different, depending on their experience. Or it's, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's wonderful. Listen, can you be praying for my family? My mother is sick or I have this situation or so on and so forth. But you need to realize that as you go into this world, your reputation as a Christian precedes you. Hence, you must strive to be extremely biblical. Someone once said, um, there are five Gospels. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people will never read the first four. Isn't that something? Most people in the world are going to get their perception of Jesus Christ through you and I, our reputation. And so we've got to be mindful of that. The second thing we need to be mindful of is that the Father always has divine appointments for us. Amen? Ephesians 2.10 says this concerning you. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Let me say it again. You ought to memorize it. Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We know from the Bible that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Ephesians 2.8 says we are saved by grace through faith alone, and then verse 9, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And God has prepared for everyone in here who is a Christian good works beforehand. That is, before you ever took your first breath, he prepared good works that you should walk in them. That word should means some people will and some people won't. But we need to be mindful, even as Jesus, I'm sure, was as he ventured northward, that his reputation preceded him and the Father had divine appointments for him. And so there came this woman. Now, as I said before, the woman was a picture of alienation for two reasons. Number one, she was a Gentile. And a Gentile basically is anyone other than a Jew in the New Testament context. And during the first century, the Jews had various beliefs about the Gentiles. One of the things that you can read in Jewish writings that were compiled in the third century into the Mishnah and the Talmud is you can read this, that God created the Gentiles to fuel the fires of Gehenna. Gehenna is another word for hell. The Jews during that time, some of them, 
the majority certainly of the religious leaders believed that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. Now, nowhere does the Bible teach that, and that is in no way true. But that was an idea, a religious idea, that was commonly held by the Jews of the day. And so instantly, by the fact that Jesus and his disciples were Jews, certainly among his disciples, not among he himself, there would have been this mindset that, oh gosh, Gentiles. Lord, why are you taking us to Lebanon? Can't we hang out here in Galilee? If you want to go north, let's call it quit. It's at the Golan Heights. Maybe Caesarea Philippi. Maybe as far north as Dan, but let's not go up to Lebanon. Let's not go up there and encounter these Gentiles. Nevertheless, there they are, and here comes this Gentile woman. Now, not only would she be um, uh, sort of discriminated against by the Jews because she was a Gentile, but also because she was a woman. And Jesus, of course, was a rabbi. And the religious leaders of that day, but not Jesus, held that the rabbi shouldn't have any interaction whatsoever with women, common women, other than their wives. They looked down upon them and they thought that they were just an instrument to cause the men to sin. In fact, there was a sect during that time and they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. They were called this because these religious leaders, anytime they were going down the street and there was a woman, they would go like this to cover their eyes and they would smack into walls over and over. And so they had these bruises and these cuts and they were bloody and they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because of this horrible belief that they had that women could only cause them to stumble and nothing more. And so you understand that there would have been these ingrained cultural expectations among the disciples as this woman came that, oh golly, Here comes a woman, and now she wants to talk to Jesus, the rabbi. And not only that, but she is a Gentile. And they also called Gentiles during that day dogs. And the scribes believe that by coming in contact with the Gentile, you were made ceremonially unclean. So you can see as this woman came, that as far as the mind of the common Jew went, she had everything working against her. There were barriers up. Now, can you relate? Only if you're honest. You have either been the victim of some sort of discrimination or you have been discriminating against others in your lifetime. We all, unfortunately, to one degree or another, have these cultural barriers based on untruth that we build up and then act upon. Jesus is the barrier breaker. This woman was alienated by the traditions of men and the attitudes of men. But in another sense... Because she was a Gentile, she was alienated by the salvific plan of God. That is God's plan as it pertains to salvation. We're told in the book of John, in chapter 4, verse 22, that salvation is of the Jews. Jesus said in the parallel account to our text in Matthew 15, I go, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. When the gospel was given, it was given to the Jew first, it says in Romans 1.16, and then to the Gentile. So God's plan was to save all the nations, that the gospel would go to all the nations, but that it would be delivered through the nation of Israel. That was God's plan way back in the beginning, even in Genesis chapter 12 in the Abrahamic covenant. He tells Abraham, and all the nations will be blessed through you. That is because the Messiah would come through him. But we understand that Jesus was born a Jew and that the gospel was supposed to go to the world through the Jews. And so he sought to first evangelize the Jews. 
And the early church was made up solely of Jews. And the first missionary trips were by Jews to Jews. In fact, the early church in the book of Acts was astounded when the gospel and henceforth the Holy Spirit was imparted to Gentiles. This blew their mind. Paul, throughout his ministry, would go first to the synagogue to preach to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So this woman receives this response by Jesus as she comes. And I want you to, re- to see the response with that background. It says in verse, 24, after hear- or verse 25, after hearing about him, this woman came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, and she was asking Jesus to cast a demon out. And Jesus said to her, Let the children be satisfied first, but it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. Wait a minute here. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This woman came and said, Jesus, I have a problem. And Jesus said, let's deal with the children of Israel first. It's not good to give things to the dogs that are meant for the children. Oh no. We have a problem right now in our Jesus theology, don't we? Because we don't normally see Jesus as this guy who goes around calling women dogs and refuses to respond to the woman whose child is demon-possessed. Follow me now. In the parallel account of Matthew 15, it's very clear that when this woman was coming to him, she was repeatedly saying, Jesus, help me with my daughter. Jesus, help me with my daughter. And Jesus, all the while, remained silent. In his silence, the disciples said, hey, let's get this woman to get out of here. She's wearing us out. She's bugging us. She's a nuisance. She's a dog. Let's get her out of here. Now, it's very important when we study the Bible that we study the Bible in context. In the immediate context of the chapter and the verses in which you're reading, and in the broader context of the whole Bible. Now the broader context of the Bible gives us an understanding of the character and heart of God. And so as we read this passage, we cannot isolate it apart from the rest of Scripture. We've got to read it alongside the rest of Scripture, which challenges us to think, what is Jesus doing here when he refers, at least figuratively, to this woman as a dog, and he speaks here of the children being Israel? It says in Matthew 15, again, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What is Jesus talking about? How could he be so cruel? Well, we know, because we do study the Bible in context, that Jesus isn't cruel. We know that he's a lover of people. We know that he was sent to redeem the whole world. And so if we look at the big picture, the big context of the Bible, we start to think, wait, there's got to be something more here. There might be something I'm missing. It doesn't seem in line with the character of Christ to call this woman a dog. Now, the smaller context, follow me, is the training of the twelve. Remember, he took these guys up there to be alone with him and to equip them for the work of the ministry. And in his silence, there was elicited from them a response. And the response was, let's get this woman out of here. And the moment they say that in Matthew 15 is when Jesus now begins to interact because he's now accomplished two things. Number one, he's going to draw faith out of the woman, and we'll see that in a second. But number two, he's going to reveal the heart of the disciples and then later seek to align their heart with the heart of God as he interacts gently with this woman. See, sometimes Jesus is very sneaky, sneaky. Remember in the feeding of the 5,000 when he said to Philip, Oh, golly, Philip, 
What do you think we ought to do? There's several thousand people here that need food. What do you think we ought to do? It said expressly in the text, this he said to Philip, even though he knew what he was intending to do because he was testing Philip. Man, sometimes the Lord puts us in an interesting situation that we might consider him and weigh our hearts before him. So he's doing with this with the disciples. And so as Jesus is silent, the faith begins to come out of this woman. And what he says to her is this. Let's read it again, but then I'll I'll clue you in on some content. Verse 27, Let the children, speaking of Israel, be satisfied first. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now that word dogs. There's different words in the Bible for dogs. There's a word that just means dog, and there's a word that means little dog. Lots of languages have in them something called diminutives. You know what that is? It's to make something small. In in Spanish, right? In Spanish, it's all the time like burro and burrito. See? Como no? Está bien. Tu comprends? Oh, that was French. Sorry. Uh, You understand? Uh, What's another one? Uh, Abuelito? Abuelita. Grandma? It's a term of endearment? What else? Como? Abuela. Abuela. What does that mean? Grandma. Okay. And uh, what's another one? Isn't there mijo and... Mejito. Si, está bien. Muchas gracias. So many languages, like Spanish, have these diminutives where you can denote the smallness of something. Mijo, my son, and mejito, my little son, right? And they are also, as in the, term, as in the use of grandma there, they are also terms of endearment. Now when Jesus said to this woman, it's not good to give the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, he used a diminutive. He used the form of the word which was little dogs or puppy dogs. Like a little cute puppy. Jesus said it's not good to take the food off the plates of the children and give it to the puppies. Now here's what I think, what was, here's what I think is happening here. The disciples clearly expected that Jesus would call her a dog, a big dog, as the Jews often did. And she, obviously having some understanding of the Jews to the south, might have expected the same thing. And I think that when Jesus was silent and then finally spoke up after the disciples asked for her to be sent away, that Jesus was beginning to engage her on a heart level. First of all, he wanted to announce his mission. He wanted no mistake about that. Listen, I'm sent first to the children of Israel. But then the father heart of God kicks in, I believe. And he goes like this. "Uh, You know, I'm supposed to go to Israel. And it's not good to give the things that are meant for Israel to the little puppy dogs. And we can tell that she was not offended by this um, analogy because she presses the analogy in the next statement. Verse 28, she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the puppy dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. You see, I think what this was was a very sweet interaction. There's no way that we can discern the tone of the Lord's voice or the cadence of his speech or the expression on his face. I am speculating. I am interpreting. I think that because of the context of God's heart and how he's training the disciples now that this interaction was sweet and by the fact of the content, the meaning of the words that he used the diminutive of dog, doggy. I think it was a sweet interaction. In other words, I think he was saying, what do you want me to do for you, little puppy dog? 
You're just precious, you little woman. Can't you hear the Lord speaking like that? You are just precious. Look, I can't do this. I'm here with my Jew boys right now. And she would say, well, yes, Lord, but even the puppy dogs feed off the crumbs. I think that's the heart of the Lord in the situation right here. I think he used it as a term of affection to draw the faith out of the woman and to train the disciples. In other words, it's like he said to the disciples, never call a Gentile, much less a woman, a dog. She's a precious puppy dog in my mind. And so she presses the analogy and then Jesus responds to her faith in verse 29. And he said to her, because of this answer, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. It says in Matthew 15, verse 28, the parallel account, oh woman, your faith is great. You see, Jesus was astonished at this interaction. You see how she was drawing the faith out of her? She responded and said, yeah, I understand that, Lord. But even the puppy dogs. And in that, God went, here's faith. I'm here with these disciples. Do you remember in, uh, in, in Mark chapter 6 that it says about the disciples during the storm, it says about them that they hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Remember we studied that? They hadn't gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Jesus broke the loaves and the fish, handed it to the disciples. They fed thousands of people through this miraculous event that came from the hands of God, and they didn't quite get it. And that's why you remember we studied that he sent them into the storm was to build their faith. And the end result of the storm, when Jesus walked on the water and calmed the storm, was that they worshiped the Lord for who he was. He was beginning to build faith in them. But I think now he's sitting in Lebanon with his disciples and this Gentile woman has more faith than they do. And that is exactly what happens when our reputation precedes us as Christians and we meet someone in the workplace or at school or someone else and we know that they're not born again believers and nevertheless they say to you, please pray for my mother, she's sick. Please pray for my father. Please pray for this person. They were just in a car accident. They may be Gentiles, so to speak, outside the family of God, so to speak, but oftentimes they've got more faith than even we do. And to my own uh, discredit, to my own shame, I often walk away saying, oh, I'll definitely pray for you. And I walk away and I just, I forget. Jesus said, if you have faith such as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it will be moved. You'll say to this tree, be uprooted, this mountain, whatever. You know how it goes. You're going to say to stuff, move, it's going to move. Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, this stuff will happen. If we had faith, of the Syrophoenician woman, stuff would happen. She said, Lord, I know you can do it. I know just the scraps that come from the table are able to deliver my daughter. He said, oh, woman, you have great faith. Be it done to you according to your faith. Go your way. Your daughter has been set free. You see, God is always impressed with faith. It's the only time that we see Jesus marveling in the New Testament is when he encounters faith. There's this idea of barriers here that I want to speak about for a minute by way of application. Humanly speaking, the woman had every right and and every idea in her mind to feel alienated. The disciples said, let's send her away. But Jesus wanted to embrace her and he wanted to do a work in her life. Now that ought to serve as a mild reminder or maybe a strong reminder and a mild rebuke to the church. 
that the church has been guilty in the past and even now of setting up various and sundry barriers between us and those who are outside the church. Don't we? The church historically and contemporarily and contemporarily has barriers up against all sorts of people group. The homeless, maybe. Those with diseases, maybe. Those who are divorced are often mistreated by the church. Homosexuals are often mistreated by the church. The odd, the deformed, the oppressed, the unlovely are often shunned by the church when, G- when the Bible says in James one twenty seven, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God that you visit widows and orphans in their distress, the needy, that you minister to the needy and you keep yourself unstained by the world. Let me just paraphrase or let me give you an idea of that. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God that you get outside the four walls of the church and put feet to your faith, make it active and start loving the people in the community who have needs. That's what the Lord is saying there. We're supposed to care for those people. When Paul was commissioned to go to the Gentiles with the gospel, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem gave him free reign and they said to him, only don't forget this, don't forget the poor. Paul, don't forget the heart of God for the needy, for the poor, for the oppressed, for the downtrodden, for the displaced, for the alienated. These are the ones that Jesus came and reached out to. When he was in his ministry, he hung out with the prostitutes, the drunkards, the tax gatherers, the alienated, the discriminated against, the displaced, the downtrod, the broken, and the hurt. That's who Jesus chose to hang out with. And so often we find barriers up even in the midst of the church. What amazes me is that those people in the New Testament easily approached our Lord. He could be in someone else's house having a meal and a prostitute felt freedom to come in there through the door and throw perfume on his feet and begin to weep and worship at his feet. The prostitutes and the drunkards couldn't get enough of Jesus. They were clamoring to get a piece of him and somehow they are repelled by the church today. You see, we're missing something. We're missing the love of Christ. We're missing this compassion which was in the heart of God. The disciples would say, oh, this woman, the dog. And Jesus would say, no, this precious woman, the little puppy dog. I'm going to set her daughter free. You see, if we're disciples of Jesus Christ truly, if we reflect his glory, then the prostitutes and the tax gatherers and the drunkards ought to be as attracted to us as they were to Jesus Christ because we are his representatives. We just need to check ourselves. We just need to think about these things. Marilyn Manson. We all know who Marilyn Manson is. Marilyn Manson grew up going to a Christian school. And he grew up going to youth group for a time. And in youth group, because Marilyn Manson was kind of nerdy in that time of his life and and wasn't so cool and didn't look so great, he was alienated against in the youth group. The other kids ostracized him. They set him apart. They didn't want much to do with him. It was at that point where Marilyn Manson said, this Christianity thing is junk. Turned away from it and said, these people can't be representing Jesus Christ. All the stuff they say can't possibly be true. And you know the rest of the story concerning Marilyn Manson. But it started because he felt alienated by the church. How many Marilyn Mansons have there been in the last 2,000 years? who because they felt alienated by the church, rejected the truth of the gospel and went seeking after something else. Now let me tell you this.
If we don't provide people with the love of Jesus Christ, they will seek it elsewhere and Satan will make sure they find a false love. Satan will make absolutely sure of it in the false religions, in the indulgences of the flesh. Here's what Marilyn Manson said in an interview on MTV. He said, parents, if you don't love your children, I will. Parents, if you don't love your kids, I'm going to love them. Why? Because he felt unloved by his family. He felt rejected and alienated by all those around him. He went looking for love. Listen to me, parents. Anything we don't provide for our kids in the way of love, acceptance, encouragement, warmth, forgiveness, or direction, there will always be a drug pusher or a seductive woman or man or a false religion or a Marilyn Manson that will accept them, that will give them a sort of love, a sort of warmth, and a false direction. Anything we don't provide for them as parents, the world is going to provide, and we aren't going to like the results. You understand what I'm saying? These guys had cultural barriers up to the Gentiles, and Jesus sought to break down the barriers. And it starts in the home. Anytime Jesus performed a miracle in the New Testament on an individual, he said to them afterwards, now go your way. In other words, go home. In other words, our faith starts at home. It starts with those nearest to us. That is who we can most readily share the love of Christ with and begin this thing of love in the name of Jesus. But we've got to take it out of the world's power to love our youth. Amen? And so God responded to this woman's faith. Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Listen to what Second Chronicles six nineteen says, or six nine rather, I'm sorry. It says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is completely his. God is looking for someone with faith through which and with which and on which he can demonstrate his great power. This woman had great faith. And what we need to understand as the church is that we can, as this woman did, have faith on behalf of others. Listen to me now. This demon-possessed girl was just laying in the bed some other place, but the mom had faith on behalf of her. And so she came interceding for her daughter, making intercession for her daughter. In the book of Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy concerning his pastoring of the church in Ephesus. And he begins to talk to Timothy about church practice in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And he says, first of all, I want prayers, petitions, and intercessions to be offered on behalf of all men. First of all, in church practice, I want the people in the church to be interceding on behalf of others who have no faith for themselves. Paul said to Timothy, the first thing I want the church to do is pray on behalf of those who can't make it on their own, who haven't got the faith, who haven't got the strength, who haven't got the knowledge, who haven't got the ability, who are oppressed, who are downtrodden, who are displaced, who are alienated, who are apart from the family of God, who are heartbroken, who are deceived, who are possessed and distressed. The first thing I want the church to do is to intercede on behalf of the these people. 
That is the word of the Lord. The first thing I want the church to do is intercede, and it would follow that if the church doesn't do this, the church has been rendered meaningless. There is no church without intercession. Isaiah 59, there was an injustice in the kingdom of Judah, excuse me. There was an injustice in the kingdom of Judah, and the heart of God was distressed about the injustice. And it says in Isaiah 59, verse 15, the second half, the Lord saw the the injustice and was displeased. And then in verse 16 of Isaiah 59, and the Lord was astonished that there was no man to intercede. The Lord was flabbergasted that at a time of injustice in the kingdom of Judah, he could not find a faithful man to intercede for righteousness. God was astonished. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus says to a man who was paralyzed and laying on a pallet, he says to the man, take up your pallet and walk. Their faith has made you well. Wait a minute. The friends of this paralyzed man had the faith to bring him to where Jesus was, saw that the room was too crowded, one up on the roof, tore the roof off the house, lowered him down before Jesus, and we're just waiting for Jesus to do something. You understand that the church is called to tear the roof off, to remove the barrier between God and men, to bring men before the presence of Jesus Christ and expect him to do something? And in all these cases of which I'm speaking in the book of Isaiah, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and in Mark chapter 2 verse 5, and in our text before us in Mark chapter 7, it is the faith of others that God is willing to respond to on behalf of men and women. That's absolutely profound for those around us. Here's what's more profound. Get this. Had this woman not come and interceded for her daughter, God would have done nothing about it. Had this woman not come to where Jesus was, had she not persisted, had she not pushed aside the barriers, had she not found him in his place and kept on begging him, it's very clear in the Greek, kept on begging him to do something, God would have done, it is apparent, nothing about this child. She would have remained in her condition. I can't explain that to you. I don't understand that. But James says, you have not because you ask not. As much as prayer moves our hearts, prayer moves the heart of God. God responds to the prayer of faith. It says again in James that the prayer of the righteous man is effective. The fervent prayer of the righteous man is effective It accomplishes much. I am struck by the profundity of that fact that had she not interceded, nothing would have changed. Now, what needs to change in the lives around you? What needs to change in our community? What needs to change in the hearts and minds of our youth? Your kids and my kids, our friends, our friends at the high school, at the junior high, on our coastline here, in the city council, in the cabinet of the president, in Congress, in the Senate, worldwide, what needs to change? We are responsible to petition the throne of God that there might be a change for righteousness. We have that responsibility entrusted to us. Church, we've got to pray. I have a dream. 
I have a dream that on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. at our prayer meeting, there would be more people here to pray than there are right now to hear this cheesy sermon. I have a dream that at the prayer meeting that happens every Sunday morning at 8.30, there would be more people here to intercede than to sample the coffee. That's my dream, that there'd be more people praying in the church than just sitting in the church. God accomplished that in our midst. And so we've got to learn from the what the disciples didn't learn. We've got to learn from Jesus that God is compassionate as he was to this woman and that God is moved through prayer. And likewise, we must be passionate and compassionate, passionate for prayer and compassionate for people and persistent in our faith. Now, the following account that we'll finish with is another account of intercession or faith by others on behalf of someone. Read with me, starting in verse 31. And again, Jesus went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him, they brought to him, one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they entreated or were begging him to lay his hand upon him. And Jesus took him aside from the multitude by himself and put his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up into heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened in Aramaic. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. I want you to see once again that someone else brought the man in need to Jesus. The man said nothing to Jesus. He couldn't. There was no prior interaction other than these men brought this man and were begging God on behalf of him. God, do something. God, please work in this situation. And because God is a God of compassion, he was moved by their pleading. Remember when Lazarus was dead in John chapter 11? We're told in John chapter 11, verse 33, that He was deeply moved, Jesus was deeply moved when he saw Mary and the Jews crying. Mary and the Jews are crying about the fact that their brother Lazarus is dead. Now, Jesus knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that. And yet when he saw Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and the Jews, his friends, crying about this death, it says in John 11, 33, that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled. You see, God sees the end, but that does not remove his compassion in the now. God sees the end, but he never says, oh, get over it, you wimp. I'm going to raise him from the dead in a few minutes. Gosh, gee whiz, quit crying. It's never the heart of God. That's the heart of me. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God sees the end and yet has compassion for the moment. It's hard sometimes to have compassion on a three-year-old, isn't it? They're crying about something so silly. And you know that in one minute, you know, it's going to be fine. Like they're watching a TV show and it goes to a commercial. (laughs) And you know that in about three and a half minutes, the commercial's going to end. And you're just, gosh, kid, get over it. Just a couple minutes here. But if you have compassion, if you're that kid's father, now everything's different. If you're babysitting and they cry at the commercial, you're like, oh my gosh. How much am I getting paid right now? This is ridiculous. But if it's your child, your heart breaks with their heart even over the commercial. 
You understand what I'm saying? Your heart breaks for their heart. You're know, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. My son can lose a 25-cent ball down the crack in the, my mom's deck in her backyard. And if it breaks his heart, it breaks mine. Just yesterday, we were at the park. Nobody tell him. I hope he can't hear me upstairs. Just yesterday, we were at El Carroll Park for a barbecue. And somebody swiped the kid's baseball mitt. What is going on in our town? People are stealing from the churches and from the kids. Someone stole his baseball mitt. Now, when he started freaking out, my wife and I started freaking out. Our hearts broke with him. And another person said, I'll give you my son's baseball mitt. They saw the distress and the panic in our eyes. We'll give you one. You go ahead and take ours. I had the baseball mitt, but I couldn't find his ball. And I had like 30 softballs with me. And so I pulled out one of my softballs and I said, here, Isaiah. And he goes, that's not my ball. And I said, I know it is his son. I know, gosh. I know. And so I went right to Thrifty's. I said, son, we're going to get you a ball. But it was 7.23, 23 minutes past his bedtime. I knew that his mother was going to kill me when I got him home. I should have went straight home, but I was so moved by compassion. Let's go to Thrifty's and buy you another ball, you little crying brat. <laughs> and so we go to Thrifty's and we go in there and they have no baseballs but a stupid softball. I say, how about this one? That's too big. I know it is. And so he sees a brand new shiny basketball. (laughs) Have you bought a basketball in Thrifties lately? Nine million (laughs) dollars. It's like Kobe's personal ball or something. It's got to be for the price they charge. And Isaiah goes, hmm, I'd rather have that than a baseball. And so what does the heart of a father do? He buys him the ball. It's not even a question. I've got my credit card. I don't care if it breaks a bank. The kid's getting the ball. Talk to me in a few years. We'll see if I spoil them. But that's the heart of compassion for the kid. Now, what on earth am I talking about? I'm having the slightest idea. Oh, Mary. So here's Mary crying about Lazarus. And Jesus knows he's going to raise her from the dead, but he doesn't say to her, get over it, woman. It says instead that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved in spirit. That phrase comes from an ancient Greek word that was used to describe the snorting of a horse. I don't understand that except for the snorting of a horse. It's not funny. I don't understand that except for the snorting of a horse is something that comes from deep within, I guess. I mean, somehow they use this word, this... That sounds more like a Donald Duck. This sound of a horse, the Bible used it to describe that Jesus was distressed in his spirit. It was something that moved him physically. In other words, one translation says it this way. He gave way to such distress of spirit that it made his body tremble. There's the essence of it. Jesus was so distressed at the distress of Mary whom he loved that in his own body he trembled for her. That is compassion. Compassion is sympathy in action. Our God is a God of compassion. When the child cries, God hears it. There is no place where earth's sorrows are more felt than in heaven. Everything that you feel, God understands and feels infinitely more. 
He is exceedingly compassionate. And that's one thing that we need to learn from him in this text. But I want you to notice what he does now with this guy on behalf of the faith with the others. It says in verse 33, he took him aside from the multitude by himself and he put his fingers in his ears and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Now, what is the Lord doing? This is just one of those weird things. This is one of those things where we who take the Bible literally, you worry about us. Because when you come up to the prayer team, Pastor G, he starts poking his fingers in you and he starts spitting on you. And he says, hey man, we biblical, we take the Bible literally. (laughs) We could do that. But what was the Lord doing? What did he mean? Listen to what he's doing. He was fighting formulas. He was fighting formulas. You see, the religious leaders had a set of formulas how to deal with these people. In that day, in the first century, if someone could not hear and they could not speak, it would instantly be assumed of them that they were demonized. All right? It would instantly be assumed of them that they were demonized. And when the religious leaders of that day went to deal with the demon, they had a formula. And the first step of the formula was always that you had to get the name of the demon. That was the superstition of the day. We see Jesus doing it one time in the Gospels. But their formula was you had to get the name of the demon. You see how it posed a problem for the person who could not hear and could not speak? For the religious leaders, because of their formula, they weren't able to get the name of the demon, therefore they could do nothing for the man. You understand that their formula had hemmed in the power of God. Their formula had put God in a box. And so Jesus now, again, wanting to train the disciples who were steeped in the, in the Judaism of that time, wanted to destroy or fight against the formulas, even as he breaks the barriers. And he says, forget about this. The Pharisees will come and say, there's nothing we could do. We can't ask the demon the name. This guy can't hear us talk. And he won't be able to say the demon's name anyway. And Jesus said, well, <clears throat> let's just show you how outside the box I am. I'm just going to stick my fingers in this guy's ears. Maybe wiggle them around a little bit. I don't know. And then he spit. Where did he spit? I don't know. It says that his fingers were in his ears. Where did he spit? I don't know. Some translations put parenthetically or commentaries put parenthetically. He spit on the ground probably and then, or maybe he spit on his finger and then touched it. I don't know. I think he just spit right in the guy's mouth. So what it says. His fingers were in his ear and then Jesus spit and the saliva touched his tongue. You see, sometimes God is weird according to our standards. Because God refuses to live according to your standards. Amen? God refuses to be normal for us. He's not a show pony. He's not a well-trained dog. He's not a religious idea or ideal. He is the God of the universe who knows no bounds and no limits. So God said, well, let's just trip out the disciples right now. Then he looked up to heaven, be opened! And the guy could hear and the guy could talk. Now, that was how he trained the disciples in that instance, and that's how he fought against formulas. But there's also something very beautiful in this interaction. We saw that the last interaction was one of beautiful love between him and the woman. Just speaking kindly to her. This one was a beautiful love too. You see, Jesus couldn't talk to the guy, could he? He couldn't talk to the guy, he was deaf. And so he communicated with him just in, in, in the most wonderful way. I'm going to heal your ears. Your ears. I know you can't hear me. I'm touching your ears. I'm, I'm going to heal this right here. I'm going to heal your ears. Your tongue. With my very tongue, the tongue of God, I'm going to loosen your tongue. I know you can't hear me right now. 
I'm going to heal your ears. I'm touching them. I'm going to loosen your tongue. You're going to talk. You see, God will do whatever it takes to touch our hearts. He'll do whatever it takes to touch our hearts. And if there's an area where we've closed ourselves off to God, we can't hear him, we can't even talk to him about it, he's still willing to touch us there. He pulled this guy aside by himself and he touched him in the place where he needed to be healed. That's what God wants to do for you and I as individuals. And that's what God wants to do through you and I as a church as we exercise faith by interceding on behalf of others. He wants to touch people where nobody else can touch them and heal them in a way that no formula could ever achieve. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how wonderfully practical it is and how pertinent it is to our lives. And I ask right now, God, that you would stir these things in us deeply, that we wouldn't be merely hearers of the word. Lord, we need faith. We need the faith that the Syrophoenician woman had to bring our children before you who are demonized. We need love to bring people before you who are alienated. And we need compassion to bring people before you who need to be touched by you. And so God, now we would ask as individuals and as a church that you would impart to us faith, love, and compassion. God, that you would break our hearts with the things that break your heart. We would confess that our hearts are selfish, conceited and full of so many other things. God, this morning, fill our hearts with your concerns. And then give us faith to believe that as we intercede on behalf of them, you will move. You will do things. You will respond. You will change the world as we bring it to the throne of grace. God, do that in in us this morning. Work that in the depth of our hearts. I even pray that right now as we worship, you would purify our hearts. And just God, in your mercy and to the right measures you see fit, break our hearts. Break our hearts and make them tender and sensitive to that and for that with which you are concerned. Do that in us now, Lord, as we press into you.